From Georgia Public Broadcasting, this is On Second Thought. I'm Virginia Prescott. The newest Ken Burns series premiering in September follows the vast and varied evolution of country music over the 20th century. The eight-part series begins not in Nashville, but Atlanta. Now I'm getting old and feeble and I cannot work no more. That rust-inflated hole I've laid to rest. That is The Little Old Log Cabin in the Lane by Fiddlin' John Carson, credited as the first country music hit, and it was recorded by Ralph Pierce smack dab in downtown Atlanta at 152 Nassau Street. Earlier this month, the city of Atlanta approved a demolition permit to tear down the building to make way for a new Margaritaville resort. Well, as you may expect, the prospect of a wrecking ball has stirred up a fight. There are folks pleading with Margaritaville to save the historic recording studio, and a petition to protect it is circulating online. Well, we have a whole mess of guests here in the studio to talk about the building's history and what it means to preserve or demolish it. Kyle Kessler is an Atlanta architect and preservationist who launched that petition on Change.org. Kyle, welcome. Thanks for having me. And Nedra Deadweiler, founder and CEO of Civil Bikes. They do bike tours highlighting history, art, and culture in Georgia's capital. And they're putting on an event, by the way, on Atlanta's music history called Records and Revolutions. That's tomorrow evening. But Nedra, thanks for being here now. Thanks for having me. Also with us, Steve Goodson, history professor at the University of West Georgia. He's got a focus on U.S. culture and entertainment and is author of Highbrows, Hillbillies, and Hellfire, Public Entertainment in Atlanta, 1880 to 1930. Steve, thanks so much for coming in. Thanks for having me. And Lance Ledbetter, co-director of Dust to Digital. It's a Grammy award-winning record company that documents historic recordings. Good morning. Thanks for being here. Thanks, Virginia. All right. I'm going to start with you, Steve, because before we get into this current debate over the building, let's establish why it's historic, beginning with Ralph Peer. Who was he? Uh, Ralph Peer was from Independence, Missouri. He was an artist and repertoire man for OK Records, which was established in the late teens. And part of his duty was to bring in artists and Find, match them with songs and get them recorded and try to catch okay up with the industry leaders, Victor and Columbia, that were already well established. So in 1920, he started with okay records after learning the trade pretty much at Columbia. He recorded in t- 1920 what is regarded as the first blues record in New York, not Atlanta, but let's hear just a little bit of it. This is Mamie Smith's Crazy Blues. And this is the beginning of the race record market, an effort to appeal to African-American consumers specifically. And it was a big success. So Pierre was aware of segmenting different styles of music. Was he aiming for different audiences, Kyle? He was. And this is particularly sort of a working class record. Um, and what we think brought him to Atlanta was to record some more race records, as they were called back then. And uh, he happened to luck upon or was introduced to Fiddle and John Carson. So not just black audiences, but white working class audiences as well. So this was not big city music down here in Atlanta, southern folk, rural folk. He discovered the market appeal. What was the appeal for him, Lance? Well, I think he was looking for, you know, hit hit songs. Um, back in the uh, early 20s, what they're trying to do is in the record industry is sell phonograph machines. And they would throw in records. Uh, when people would purchase these expensive uh, phonograph, old, the old wind-up players, and uh, um, when people started coming back to the furniture store saying we want more, want more records, um, people like Ralph Peer responded and and went to record, 
music and make records that people would like to listen to over and over again. In fact, the guy he was in business with was a furniture store dealer, wasn't he? That's correct. Yeah, the the big uh, uh, dealer for records here in Atlanta was a guy by the name of James K. Polk. And he had a distribution center on Whitehall Street, and his record shop was on uh, Decatur Street. His grandson was uh, named after him, his um, daughter's son, Polk Brockman. And Polk Brockman was the, the, the sort of the local A&R person for Ralph Peer. Uh-huh. So, I mean, we know Alan Lomax a little later. You know, he's a folklorist and an oral historian, and he's collecting sounds for the sake of documenting the South. Lance, you've certainly worked with Bill Ferris and others who much later did the same kind of work. But So was it an aesthetic decision for Ralph Peer, or was it market opportunity? I think it was market opportunity. I mean, um, Pope Brockman um, was sort of the risk taker a little bit in, the, uh, in Ralph Peer coming down. Ralph was looking for like Kyle said, more of a blues or jazz sound, and uh, Brockman placed an advance order for 500 copies of uh, of records. So he kind of um, gave Ralph Peer a little insurance, and it was Polk Brockman who kind of brought Carson to uh, Peer's attention. So what have most recordings been before the 1920s? Steve, do you have a sense of that? I think, I mean, huge huge star before the 1920s was Enrico Caruso, for example, uh-huh. uh, music aiming more at middle brow or uh, upper middle class taste, more respectable taste. There had been some uh, more what we'd call roots music type songs today, but they were usually recorded in a style that was more acceptable to middle class people. So the revolution that's beginning in Atlanta and in New York with Mamie Smith is that the music of I mean, ordinary people are beginning to perform their own music for audiences made up of people like themselves. And I guess you didn't have to do it in a symphony hall with a big orchestra. No, you could do it in a rented room with blankets over the walls for the acoustics. And, <laughs> Which is pretty much what it was and, at 152 Nassau. Yeah, OK developed uh, portable recording commi- uh, equipment that was not much different from the stuff they used in the studio uh-huh. so the sound wasn't that different so they could travel to remote areas or cities and and do the recording and that's what they did they set up the remote lab they called it with portable recording equipment what was downtown atlanta like back then in the early 1920s nedra well atlanta had won the war of who's going to be the greatest city um with a new started with the new south movement um there was a lot of development towards removing the streetcar um, the tracks were coming up. Mm-hmm. The automobile was the way to get around. So streets were being paved. You have the viaducts being developed around the gulch. There were a lot of people that were moving around. Um, people also began to leave residents from the center of the city, moving out towards the suburbs, um, Edmund Park and um, Ansley Park, et cetera, West End. Um, so the city was growing, population was increasing, and there were also a lot of theaters yeah. that we don't see today. Nedra Deadweiler there of Civil Bikes, also with me, Steve Goodson. He's a professor at West Georgia University, preservationist and architect Kyle Kessler, and Dusted Digital's Lance Ledbetter. So Nassau Street, that's where he set up his remote lab with his portable recording equipment. A lot of stories about what the building was back then. Kyle, what did you find? So as Nedra mentioned, one of the things that was really happening was the change to transportation types, and including the automobile. So there's this little building on Nassau Street that was constructed in 1920, and it was just a spec warehouse building. The first tenant that we know of that was in the building was the Pyrene Manufacturing Company, which sold fire extinguishers. And they sold to two primary audiences. One was to new automobile owners, because 
automobiles would happen to catch on fire, so you needed to carry a extinguisher with you. And then to the booming film business as well. So Atlanta was a distribution center in the southeast for the highly flammable nitrate film stock. So the two audiences you could sell to were, were those two. So this was a great location for them, but they had vacated the building in 1923, which created this perfect opportunity for Polk Brockman to work with Ralph Peer to bring OK Records down to this temporarily vacant building. Uh, one of the interesting things I found during the research of this building is that, once again, as, ne as Nedra said, uh, they were tearing up the streetcar tracks. They were really sort of changing the transportation modes. But on Nassau Street, for whatever reason, it was paved not with asphalt, not with concrete, not with brick, but with wooden block. Really? Which was acoustically more dampening. So there might have been a particularly <laughs> interesting reason why they chose a building on Nassau Street. It's just a block long, so there's not a lot of noisy through traffic coming through. But those wooden blocks would have helped them to dampen any sort of outside noise. So you need fewer blankets inside the building to uh, to make it acoustically separate. Well, let's listen to another record that got OK Records uh, and Ralph Pierre recorded there. Lucille Bogan, pseudonym for Bessie Jackson in the building. This is a bit from Pawn Shop Blues, 1923. All the birds in Atlanta town. In his book about Ralph Pierre, Barry Mazur identifies this as the first blues record ever recorded in the South, in this makeshift temporary studio. So, you know, we heard little old log cabin in the lane from Fiddle and John Carson right at the beginning of the show. We've also got the B side of that record. This is the old hen cackled and the rooster's gonna crow. So, Lance, how did these records do for, for Ralph Pierre and OK Records? Well, the one that was the big surprise was the fiddle and John Carson. Um, I think Ralph Pierre was probably, you know, the, the huge success of Mamie Smith's uh, Crazy Blues. He was looking for something like that uh, here in the South and... and um, and he came across Carson, which was a type of music that he wasn't as familiar with. And um, the sales, especially in the South and here in Atlanta, just overwhelmed him and sort of set him on a course to record more and more country music. Yeah, so this was considered hillbilly music. Yes, he, he called it, at the beginning, OK, called it hill country. And then they started calling it old time tunes. But eventually, the, the, the big name came hillbilly. That's okay. right. So Fiddle and John Carson later recorded a song called Little Mary Fagan. This is about the 13-year-old murdered at a pencil factory in Marietta. And the song riled up folks during the trial of Leo Frank, um, notably a Jewish man who was lynched in Atlanta after his sentence was commuted. Why was Fiddle and John Carson writing about this kind of thing, Steve? Well, this case was very important to uh, many of the migrants who'd come into the Atlanta. One reason Atlanta was a resource-rich center for recording was so many people from the surrounding rural areas, black and white, had been coming to the city to work for the railroads and construction and textile mills. And it was a great, very stressful for a lot of farm families transplanted to urban areas to have to send their daughters off to work in textile mills. And there was fear that they would be uh, sexually molested by the owners. So this case in which a factory owner-manager was charged with having molested and killed a 13-year-old, it really resonated with a lot of the 
uh, working class families in Atlanta. And so this song that Carson did was appealing to these people, talking about the tragedy and the horror and the evil behind what had happened to little Mary Fagan. Right. And there was an unrecorded song, Carson's song, uh, Dear Old Oak in Georgia, sentimentalizing, or sorry, let's say acknowledging the tree in which Leo Frank was hanged. So Carson kind of created this legend around himself, made up where he was born, his age. Did you come to find more about him in the contemporary accounts, Kyle, uh, from from newspapers or anything else at the time? One of the interesting things that uh, has been talked about, but not quite as much, but in 1932, Angelo Herndon, who was a African-American labor leader, uh, had been convicted in a, Atlanta, by an Atlanta, all-white Atlanta jury of inciting an insurrection. Um, so in 1933, there was a benefit concert held on Auburn Avenue at the Royal Theater, uh, which is at the Odd Fellows Auditorium. And that was claimed in the newspaper to be the first integrated concert in Atlanta history. Um, and Phil and John Carson was the opening act for huh. that. Um, so he, he's obviously a very complex character, uh, but his political views, if you will, seem to be more aligned with, with labor activities than necessarily uh, hmm. racist activities or, or other sort of things. Uh, but it's, it's difficult to know. He was obviously of a different era um, and was passed away before we got to sort of modern sensibilities. Um, and it, it's challenging to understand whether or not he was a reflection of those times or he was helping sort of instigate or lead some of those uh, thought movements. Yeah, there we go. Looking at history. Well, let's hear just a little. We're heading into a break. We're going to hear London Blues is an early jazz tune by Jelly Roll Morton, recorded by Ralph Peer, but though not in Atlanta. As we take a short break, Steve, Kyle, Nedra, Lance, stick around. We want to keep this conversation going. And we're going to come back and hear more about this historic recording studio in downtown Atlanta and why it may not be around much longer. Stay tuned. I'm Virginia Prescott, and this is On Second Thought. We'll be back in just a moment. We are back with On Second Thought from Georgia Public Broadcasting. I'm Virginia Prescott. And you're listening to Single Life by Roba Stanley, thought to be the first country record recorded by a woman. And as we continue our conversation about how a little-known building at 152 Nassau Street in downtown Atlanta played a crucial role in launching country and American popular music. And I'm joined by a roundtable of guests. Kyle Kessler is an Atlanta architect and preservationist. He launched a petition to save 152 Nassau Street earlier this year. Steve Goodson, history professor at the University of West Georgia and author of Highbrows, Hillbillies, and Hellfire. Lance Ledbetter is co-director of Dust to Digital Records. And Nedra Deadweiler, founder of CEO, uh, founder and CEO of Civil Bikes, putting on an event called Records and Revolution, highlighting Atlanta's musical history. And it's going to take place tomorrow evening. That's July 24th. So something else not very well known, or at least not really highlighted, Fiddlin' John Carson is buried in East Atlanta. Where is his grave exactly, Lance? It's a, a cemetery called Sylvester Cemetery. It's um, If you're going through East Atlanta south, you go down Flat Shoals. There's a barber shop. Like Once you go through the village, there's a barber shop on the right. You hang a left, and it's maybe maybe a third of a mile from, from that turn. Would we know it? Is it marked? It's um, So is, as you pull into the road where the cemetery is, if you park on, on the street, um, it's one of the ones right near the street. Um, it's, it's 
pretty well marked. And in the Atlanta habit of renaming streets, they actually renamed that little street Phil and John Carson Lane. So. <laughs> well, there you go. But, you know, we haven't renamed the studio uh, at 152 Nassau. And you think of Sun Studios in Memphis, Tennessee, um, where Elvis and Johnny Cash and others were recorded, or Abbey Road in London, or Hitsville, USA, home of Motown Records. Many of them now museums, um, preserved and visited and, and, and revered in some cases. But 152 Nassau plays such an important role in what would become country music. Why do you think, Steve, I'll ask you, it's not as celebrated? Well, the country music historians talk about the big bang of country music, which was the uh, recordings by Ralph Peer again in Bristol, Tennessee, of uh, Carter Family and Jimmy Rogers and others. And that, there's a birthplace of country music museum there now, which I'd recommend to people. It's very interesting to see. The uh, what happened here was kind of a pre-bang pop. <laughs> I mean, it, it opened the way for what was to come, but it wasn't really followed up on. I mean, there was a lot of country recording in Atlanta, but then the Depression laid waste to the recording industry, and when things shuffled back out again, Atlanta was in the past, and Nashville was the future. So it's not something that lasted in Atlanta, really, in a significant way, or that the city had any pride or interest in. Well, I want to put a pin in that Bristol session, because I'd love to come back to it. But I, you know, to be honest, no one really knew what the building was. And you had trouble finding it, right, Lance? That's right. Um, when I was doing uh, research on our first, uh, our label's first project, Goodbye Babylon, um, I uh, interviewed Wayne Daniel, who had written a book uh, called Picking on Peachtree. And he's the person that told me generally where it was and and so when i went to nassau street there was a cluster of buildings there and i was pretty sure based on what wayne had told me that it was one of those buildings but i didn't know which one mm -hmm. so then in 2017 early plans for this margaritaville resort emerged that kicked you into gear to make sure it wasn't the same location kyle how did you determine which one it was well, first, I, I read that article that Lance was interviewed in. So that was the sort of inspirational piece that there was concern even back then in 2015 that the building had already been demolished or turned into a parking lot. So with some deductive reasoning based upon some old maps and some city directories and some other resources, we were able to figure out which buildings it might possibly be and if it were still standing. And then came across an article, front page article, in the June 14, 1923 edition of the Atlanta Independent, which was the black newspaper in Atlanta back then before the Atlanta Daily World. And there was an article there about Eddie Haywood, who was a jazz pianist at the 81 Theater on Decatur Street, which was a big venue in the, the circuit um, of black artists who would travel around the country. And they were letting folks know that Eddie Hay would be recording at 24 Nassau Street. Uh -huh. um, so we haven't renamed the building, but we have renumbered it. Um, Atlanta changed street numbers in 1926. Um, so it was 24 Nassau Street back then is now 152 Nassau Street. 81 Decatur, one of the highlights on your tour, isn't it, Nedra? Yes, it yeah. is. Mm -hmm. So why so significant? It's significant because of the... Um, the brothers, the Bailey brothers, and one of the one of their um, the theaters that they had um, organized and owned was at was eighty one theater, mm -hmm. um, and also at Oddfellows Hall. So that those spaces um, allowed for Black people to have an experience of joy, you know, transmuting this culture, sharing it with others. Um, 
And so that was that's a sacred space. Yeah, especially in the 1920s. I've got this Atlanta Independent article right here, and it says jazz music is still popular. And these originators of Negro records and the finders and developers of Negro voices are anxious for new discoveries and findings. So, you know, really digging into that market. But the same, the building now, what is it? This is right at the edge of Centennial Park, just blocks from America's Mart, CNN location. What is it now? So currently it's vacant. Uh, the Margaritaville developers have purchased it as of late last year. But previous to that, it had been a variety of things. There were a series of engineering firms that were in the building for a number of years, and then it became the first Gone with the Wind Museum that in one the country. <laughs> um, so Herb Bridges, who was a big collector of Gone with the Wind paraphernalia, um, had worked with a, a local person to open up a museum. And what's interesting about the building, too, is that the DeGives Opera House on Peachtree Street had just burned down, and the built the bricks from that building had become quite collectible. So they sold bricks in the gift shop to help fundraise to save the Margaret Mitchell House, which had not yet been preserved. Uh-huh. Um, so this building has connections to all sorts of different things, but including an earlier preservation effort to make sure that Atlanta didn't lose its uh, important history. And just earlier this month, demolition permit was signed by the city of Atlanta for Margaritaville Resort, which is the famous chain started by Jimmy Buffett. Is that surprising? I mean, that Jimmy Buffett's chains of all is that the business at the center of this controversy, Lance? I mean, it's 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 ironic, coincidental, all those things. I mean, if you look at like modern day country music, um, you know, Jimmy Buffett had a huge influence with with his Margaritaville song. You know, you've got people like Alan Shelton and doing a duet with him. You've got people like Luke Bryan that sing about um, country songs that it's almost like Margaritaville, another version of it of on the beach in Panama City with uh, your flip-flops on, sipping drinks, you know. and um, So, I mean, Jimmy Buffett's had a huge impact on modern-day country, and it's just kind of one of those stranger-than-fiction-type things where his um, his resort will be kind of covering up the history, the early history of country music. Well, we did reach out to several different affiliations uh, associated with either Jimmy Buffett or Margaritaville itself beginning last week and received no responses. However, NPR did receive a response to this back in May uh, from the developer Strand Capital Group of North Myrtle Beach, South Carolina, said, we care about the history of country music and the rich, diverse history of Atlanta, wrote J. Patrick Lowe. As part of the development, we are considering ways to respectfully acknowledge the OK Music recorded in an early country music song there. So, Kyle, you've been in conversation with reps from Margaritaville. What are the plans? Um, so they're proposing a 21-story resort hotel and timeshare. Um, what's un- really, really unfortunate about this p- proposal is that the hotel is not going directly on the site of this building, but instead that's where they're going to put the dumpsters and the grease traps. Oh, okay, um, that's a little sad. So this is- <laughs> I wasn't going to drag Margaritaville, <laughs> but that's terrible. Yeah, this the plans could easily be reworked to uh, save just this 20 it's a 20 foot wide building it's not that large uh, but its place in history is quite significant um, so i would certainly hope that a little bit of work as, as an architect could could tweak the plans and, and keep this building and still do a margaritaville if you if you so choose or if you wanted to put a museum or something else next to it there's a huge parking lot um, so let's not take down this little building how many people have signed your petition there have been over 7,000 so far from all 50 states and Puerto Rico, as well as, I think at last count, at least 26 different countries. So is this petition to the city of Atlanta or Margaritaville? So it's to both. Um, you can only put one official uh, sort of first name, so that's to Jimmy Buffett. And if Jimmy Buffett's listening or his folks, please uh, please call. Um, we can both be preservation heads and parrot heads together. Um, <laughs> so 
Uh, Jimmy Buffett's first. Or his, You've worked on this. Uh, thank you. Thank you. Um, we only get one take, right? So this is, this is how it's going to work. Um, so uh, it's to both the Margaritaville folks and to the city of Atlanta. The city of Atlanta is the one that issued the demolition permit. There's definitive question on the legality of whether or not that demolition permit should have been issued in the process we got to that point. Um, so whether this ends up in court or somewhere else, who knows, but uh, hopefully the powers that be can help uh, find a win-win solution for everyone. Well, there's a difference between what they call reactive preservation, right? You don't tear it down and then it's proactive pr approach, which is mm -hmm. preserving things before they're even threatened. Where does Atlanta preservation fall into this? I don't know who wants to pick that up. <laughs> so Atlanta has not done a comprehensive survey of what buildings might be considered historic since the 1980s. And obviously since that time, buildings have either sort of aged into what might be preservation or we have new tools such as Google to help us find some of these resources. I mean, it was a Google search that helped me find that Atlanta Independent article. Um, so. I think we all want to be more proactive, but Atlanta, as Nedra mentioned earlier, is all about development and it's a growing city, so it's hard to stay ahead of the curve. Uh, but yeah, I, ideally, hopefully this building can help bring attention to the fact that we need to update our survey, we need to have the conversations, we need to interview as many different people as possible and hear what's important to them, because it's not necessarily the most architecturally beautiful building. You would never call this building an architectural masterpiece, but the history, the human history that happened here is is mind-boggling um, in its uh, importance to to everything that we're discussing here today. So is there a middle path? Is there a way to protect history and push forward development, including a Margaritaville resort? What would that look for, like for you, Lance? Like, what would make you happy here? I mean, I, at this point, I mean, to your point, reactive uh, preservation, you definitely have more power in the proactive uh, uh, approach, but right now I, I I think people would be happy as long as there's just some type of acknowledgement, um, a marker, some type of even if it's in the resort and they have like a space set up to where it's just sort of acknowledged that um, something very important happened here, and we're not just covering it up and, and wiping it away, but we're, we're you know, still acknowledging its importance. Well, I'm thinking about, you know, other standouts in Atlanta's musical history and just one, you know, like I'm thinking the Big A car wash where, you know, Outkast shot that Benzer Beamer video. Now out of business, what, what are some other standouts in Atlanta's musical history, Nedra? You Ooh. mentioned 81 Decatur. 81 Decatur give me Street. Give me one or two that, that surprise people when you tell them about it. Um... I think that I've learned a lot here. W-E-R-D, well, I knew this before, mm -hmm. but W-E-R-D, radio station, right. first, first black, black radio, radio station. station. I mean, it's been preserved by another person in the city. Um, I've also learned about Henry's Grill um, through this work that Kyle is doing. Um, and Hunter Street, which is Hunter Street. Uh, that's now Martin Luther King Jr. Drive. We, yes. we rename everything here in Atlanta. <laughs> well, all right. I'm thinking that, you know, despite the city's current status as a hip-hop capital, it feels like Atlanta is always kind of having to prove its status as a music city. But clearly there's a rich history here, including at 152 NASA. Steve, why didn't Atlanta become a music city? Well, it's, when you're talking about country music, it may be as simple as the fact that Lambden K, the person who managed WSB Radio. And we haven't talked about WSB. That is essential to this whole story. Because, How so? Well, the first radio station in the South was WSB, set up in 1922. And they needed artists to fill the airtime. So people like Fiddlin' John Carson appeared. The signal at night would reach, it eventually reached all 48 states at one time or another. So 
a lot of people had followings and had achieved recognition through the radio. And then that's one thing that drew Ralph Peer and the others down here was there was this already this body of uh, artists here. But Lambden K was a upper middle class, cultured, refined, highly educated person who didn't really see anything significant in country music. Whereas uh, George Hay, who became the a manager at WSM Radio in Nashville. He was a poor Indiana boy who had a deep appreciation for working class music and country music and the like. So, you know, the way things worked out, simple difference in those men's personalities and tastes played a role. In addition to the fact that Atlanta has always had an inferiority complex, I think, and has always wanted to prove itself. And in the 1920s, it's not surprising that they thought they'd proved themselves through things like the Metropolitan Opera Company mm -hmm. that came once a year, not through this rustic, hard-drinking hillbilly who <laughs> 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 up to do these crackly <laughs> songs in this uh, warehouse. So there just wasn't any interest. There wasn't any foresight that this could turn into something big. And there wasn't any pride in that type of expression, I don't think, in Atlanta. I'm also thinking of Reese DeForest. We've spoken to him. He's the person who was leading the charge to, to preserve WERD. You need a champion, which I'm seeing a few champions probably around this table right now. But I want to go back to that. You mentioned Fiddle and John Carson um, was here in Atlanta. But then Ralph Peer went on to Bristol, Tennessee, recorded The Carter Family, Jimmy Rogers. Now, this is major acts. Ralph Peer helped Bristol claim its title as the capital of country music, right? The birthplace of country music. Why does Bristol get that and not Atlanta? What do you think, Lance? Well, I think, uh, you know, the the Carson record was a, the, a big success in 23, but, but when Peer goes to Bristol, his discoveries there were, were the Carter family and Jimmy Rogers, you know, two of the, the, the biggest names of country uh, uh, history. And so... I think just the, the, the fact that there were stars that came to that session um, and also the technology was a lot better. Back in 23, they were singing into a, an acoustic horn. And in 1927, during the Bristol sessions, they had microphones, very similar to the technology we still use today. And so the record sounded uh, better and the, the stars were sort of born in Bristol. And I think that has a lot to 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 do with it becoming the quote-unquote birthplace of country music, but I don't, I don't know if the Bristol session happens without Carson making the record here uh -huh. in Atlanta. I think it was the, the success of the Carson record that sort of set Pierre on this path to where he took country music seriously. Well, so, uh, you know, we've got half a minute left. I'm just wondering, <laughs> Kyle, what, is, what does Atlanta lose if we lose this piece of musical history? Uh, we lose a lot, and we don't even know what else we might lose. I mean, this has just been a sort of two-year jaunt to start to pull this stuff together. And there's a whole stack of books. There's one that Steve has written, uh, but there's a lot more research that still needs to be done. Uh, so I think if we keep this building around, there's opportunity to introduce more people to it, to learn all these things that we take for granted. Because whatever artist you listen to today, listen to somebody before, listen to somebody before, and we can trace it all back to this recording studio at 152 Nassau. Well, Gut Bucket Blues, not recorded there, but recorded by Gal Ralph Pierre. This is Louis Armstrong. It's Hot Fives, I think. Nedra Deadweiler with us. Civil Bikes is organizing an event called... It's called Records and Revolutions. That's tomorrow evening. We have more information about it. I want to thank Steve Goodson, Kyle Kessler, and Lance Ledbetter. Thank you so much for being with us. Thank you. Thank, thank you.
We are back with On Second Thought from GPB. I'm Virginia Prescott. Space exploration is the province of enormous teams with enormous budgets, if you think of NASA or SpaceX. Well, a team of tech-savvy, ambitious students at UGA is on course to change the game by thinking small. The Small Satellite Research Laboratory at the University of Georgia brings faculty and students together from across campus with one goal in mind, to get a satellite into space. And two launches are planned late this year and next. A few innovators from the team join us from WUGA in Athens. Associate Director David Cotton, he's research scientist from UGA's geography department. David, hello. Hello. Also with us, graduate student Hollis Neal. He's co-founder of the lab. Good morning, Hollis. Good morning to you. Thanks for having us. And Katie Summy, she's an engineering student working on payload. Hello, Katie. Hello. Well, thank you all for being here. I'm going to start with you, Hollis, as a co-founder. I understand it was another innovation that preceded this push to put something into space. What was that? Yeah, so it's it's pretty fun. So um, somebody that's not here with us, Caleb Adams, actually went over to Virginia Tech for a hackathon, and they created a remote-controlled um, telescope and won the hackathon over there. It was um, UGA's first, you know, big hackathon win. And um, ever since then, he kind of came back. We brought together a team um, and we figured how hard, you know, would it be to just keep going, keep going on this momentum um, and wanted to just send something up to space. And so we were going to send up a just, you know, small glorified Sputnik um, with these this new technology that's called a CubeSat. Um, and we were doing that. We were bothering as many faculty members as we could find. And that's actually how we ran into all of the amazing faculty here at UGA um, and started kind of getting this whole thing rolling. I love that it started with how hard can this be? <laughs> what did it prove to be? Oh, it's very difficult. But I, I feel like um, at the very beginning, we knew like one of the just really exciting aspects of, the, of this journey that we've had was just on the front end, knowing how much we would learn through it and how much stuff we didn't know going in. And so, you know, how hard can it be? But we knew it was hard, but we were excited to find out what those challenges were. So I wanted to pick up on what you said. These are CubeSats or small satellites, Cube satellites. Katie, paint a picture for us. How small is a small satellite? It depends on the... There's like designation. So a U is roughly... 10 by 10 by a little over 10 centimeters. Yeah, so not a perfect cube, but roughly. And then, so one of our satellites will be a 3U, which is like roughly the size of a loaf of bread. Hmm. And then our other satellite is actually a 6U, um, and it's going to be placed right beside it. So like two loaves of bread. Now that's creating even a small spacecraft is expensive and difficult. You first started with a Kickstarter campaign and then found research partners to give the project some purpose, which is where you come in, David. You're a research scientist working on coastal, monitoring coastal waters. How did this fit in? Well, at the same time, Hollis and the student team were, you know, wanting to put up a glorified Sputnik, myself and the faculty, we wanted to see if we could get our own sensor into space to, you know, monitor the coastal areas of Georgia. And we learned that was extremely difficult and expensive, but... At the same time, we met the student team because they reached out to us and we found these opportunities through NASA and the Air Force that allowed faculty to work with students to build satellites and payloads and put them into space. So we applied for both of them and actually won both grants. Katie, this is your area. Can you distinguish for me a satellite and a payload? Yes. So the satellite's going to have your stack that has all of the electronics for communication and power and all of those sorts of things, whereas the actual payload is what's going to gather the science for the mission. Mm -hmm. So how many people are involved in this? 
there's about 12 faculty from around campus and each semester it kind of varies, but around 50 students, a mix of graduate students and undergraduates. Now, I understand CubeSats still, being small, are expensive. And you mentioned, David, a grant from NASA. This is a $200,000 grant from the Undergraduate Student Instrument Project. So what is NASA's interest in small satellite technology? Hollis, I'll ask you. Okay, awesome. Um, so the interest for them is um, there's kind of two different trains that they go into. There's one train, which is technology demonstration. So it's um, proving things that have previously been unproven. So, for example, for our, our multi-view onboard computational imager mission, we're proving GPUs in space. Um, GPUs in space are very uncommon, and processing data on board a satellite is very uncommon. So we're proving that technology in space. And on the other side of that is actual science data. So with the miniaturization of technology, we're able to pack in a lot more you know, sensors, a lot more you know, um, this capability with these smaller, cheaper missions um, so that we can actually look at science. So, for example, our, our spectral ocean color satellite is looking at the coastal Georgia area, um, but it, this is just one satellite. If you want to expand it up and, you know, for a very cheap satellite, actually have multiple satellites, you're able to have these huge constellations to have just a lot of capability. And there are actually some companies out there now that um, are taking advantage of that and having, you know, imaging the entire globe daily. Um, and so they're, you know, very science-oriented, very... Um, you know, seeing what we can do with this data to, to better everyday life. So the, uh, oh, you, you, go ahead, David. I would like to add to this. One of the things they like and what we've seen here is it's training students. Students like the ones sitting across from me at this table are getting hands-on experience of handling hardware that goes to space. And they are the ones that do all the testing, all the integration, and they're the ones that are putting the satellite together. So NASA, the Air Force, and industry love that because people come out of UGA and are ready for the workforce. Well, tell us about that a little bit more. I want to go into the individual satellites, the SPOC. This was the spectral ocean color. This is something that you're working with directly, David. What is it actually monitoring? What can you see because of this, the enabled by this satellite, or ultimately be able to see? Well, it's actually... It's a multi-spectral imager that's adjustable, so we can adjust what wavelengths we see and send down to Earth. And that allows us to monitor coastal areas and see if there's algal blooms or sediment plumes in the water and possibly see if there's die-off of the marsh and, you know, other phenology aspects of the coastal regions. And so you also got a grant, or the lab got a grant, rather, from the Air Force for Mochi. This is another <laughs> This is another satellite. What is that exactly? Hollis? Um, so that's the multi-view onboard computational imager, um, and it's, it's a very exciting satellite. So it has a, a very high-performance optical system on it, so we can get up to, like, 6-meter resolution um, Earth imagery. And then the, the really interesting part, as I mentioned earlier, is the, the onboard GPU. So the, the plan for, for Mochi is to be able to process all of its data on board and to send down just that processed data product. So the, the conventional way of, of processing the data is just collect the raw data on the, the platform, so the satellite, and then send it down. And it's very inefficient. You have massive amounts of data. Mm -hmm. And then you process it into a much smaller data product. So what we're doing with Mochi is we're, we're planning on doing all the processing on board and then downlinking the much smaller data set, which is the actual data that we want. 
Okay, so give me some basics on satellites. I, I don't even know how a satellite gets into space. What kind of specs or what kind of approvals do you have to get to even launch one? Oh, this is this is a really fun area, um, and actually, what I'm I'm currently I currently have a headache with. Um, so, we have three primary organizations that we have to license and coordinate with. There's the International Amateur Radio Union, who we're currently talking with, um, the FCC, and then there's also NOAA. Um, so NOAA, we have to get permission to take images of the planet. Mm -hmm. um, the International Amateur Radio Union, we have to get permission to use amateur radio bands. And then the FCC is the kind of final stamp saying like, okay, you have permission to transmit um, as a United States, you know, entity. Who determines where they go? Uh, so we do to a certain extent. Um, the MOCHI mission has a lot more flexibility on where they can be placed in orbit. But for the, the Spock mission, um, we actually work with a company called Nanorax, and we hand the satellite off to them. They go and integrate it onto uh, you know, a rocket or a ISS resupply cargo um, International mission. Space Station? Yes, that's yeah. correct. Um, <laughs> you know, we're, we, we, we speak a different language maybe a little bit, so just need some oh, translation. <laughs> feel free to call me out whenever I forget to... To explain an acronym, it's definitely part of our language. Um, and then once we hand it off to the rockets um, or the, the launch providers, what we call them, um, they'll send it up and it'll either get handed to the International Space Station where then astronauts will work it into um, putting it on an arm and then the arm will go below the International Space Station and um, kind of shoot the satellite off the, the International Space Station. Or the rocket method will just be kind of pop out the side of the rocket. That's Hollis Neal. He's a co-founder of UGA Small Satellite Research Laboratory, also speaking with David Cotton, who's on the faculty there as associate director, and Katie Summy. All right, so a couple of more questions. How long does it stay up there, and who's responsible for maintaining it? I guess I'll take that one as well. So um, <laughs> You're our guy. So we're, yeah, we're, we're currently estimating that our satellite's going to be up there about two to two and a half years. Um, and in, in terms of maintenance, that's we will be doing that here. Um, we've been working on a, a full ground station here at the University of Georgia. And we, um, we currently have it, all of the pieces operating nominally. It's just now the name of the game is going to be getting all of those pieces to work together to be able to communicate with our satellite and to get, you know, health data and stuff back so we can tell it, oh, you know, don't point at the sun, that's bad for their camera. Mm -hmm. um, and also, you know, it'll tell us whether or not it's getting too hot, whether it's, you know, batteries are too depleted. And so we'll just be able to do that station kind of, you know, uh, monitoring from here as well as telling it where to to go and take pictures. So you have to design these teeny little cameras, obviously, to go on this. Katie, what goes into that? Yeah, so we actually, the camera itself we didn't design, but the optical system that goes in front of that camera we did. Um, it was, you spend a lot of time aligning uh, the different mm -hmm. lenses and the diffraction grading and the mirrors because you're taking an optic system and you're really shrinking it down. So there's a lot of, um, you have to, where the light comes in, you have to somehow rearrange it to fit in that tiny little box and also get the different, the resolution and the, be able to get the data you want. Um, so it mostly started, we had a simple design, and we kind of ran from there. We did an engineering unit first and to prove that everything, you know, worked together and that we were actually able to align it ourselves. And then we started on the flight unit, which went to um, NASA Goddard for testing a few months back, and we got great results. 
Um, but it's it's a long and kind of tedious process working with optics, but um, it's been really fun. So, David, I'm wondering, like, you know, you are associate director here, you and and you're overseeing the design of this, and you're talking about 50 members and students from a variety of departments across campus, engineers, computer scientists, business and art students, and faculty. How do they make decisions inside of this group to to come forward with those designs? We do have a very strong team structure where there's team members, and then there's leads of those different teams, and then a core leadership of students. And then we have weekly faculty meetings. So a lot of it is the students you know, come to us with a couple options. You know, here are the two choices that will work, and then we work as a team, the faculty and students alike, to see what is the most optimal solution, both in terms of risk and our abilities. Well, it sounds very serious, but from the outside, it looks like you have a lot of fun. <laughs> I mean, you've got some promotional videos that all of them have a sense of humor. I understand you name some of your equipment with humorous names. So what is that atmosphere like, and how does that impact the work that the lab is doing? Hollis, what do you think? Um, so it, it's definitely a lot of fun being a lab member here. Um, we we do have a lot of fun. Um, so th- the reason why we we do play around um, with things is because of like how much serious work that there is in the lab. So we we do a lot of research. We do a lot of really intense processing and like programming and and whatnot. Um, and so really, we'll we'll have these kind of fun things. It's just like you know, kind of keeping things in perspective um, of like being able to enjoy where we are. Um, one of my biggest kind of frustrations recently has been just not being able to slow down to enjoy, like, you know, the trips to NASA that we've been taking and, like, all of the really fun milestones that we've been hitting um, because, you know, that's what ultimately makes it, you know, just feel totally worthwhile. So we have all those distractions. We actually, one fun thing that will freak people out when we go, they go to the lab is we have, um, you know, a Nintendo 64 over in the corner. And so... <laughs> We also keep lab records for how long um, people have been in the lab. So you'll see, you know, on the lab board that somebody was in the lab contiguously for 64 hours. And it's like, well, how do you keep up work when you're in the lab for that long? How do you do things? Well, you know, every like seven or eight hours, we'll just play Super Smash Bros and, you know, have fun. Well, and now it looks like hundreds of students applied for 10 spots that were available in the lab. I'm wondering for you, Katie, besides being a pretty cool line on your resume, what are you taking away from your time with this the small satellite research lab? That's a hard question to answer. A lot. I mean, are the team functions so differently than any other research environment or work environment I've ever been in, which has been a really cool experience. Being a team lead was you get something that an undergraduate normally would never get to do. Um, so it's a lot of responsibility, but it's also working with a good team is very, very rewarding. And um, I then like, you know, I'm so young and I've put my, well, gloved hands on something that's going to go into orbit. So that's like, it's crazy to think about. That is a pretty amazing thing. What does the future look like for the lab after Spock and Mochi? We're still going to keep pursuing, you know, building sensors for environmental monitoring and keeping the track on, you know, pushing computational abilities in space because that's that's what's needed and that's what we want to keep doing and, you know, keeping students involved and hopefully getting some more partnerships with Georgia companies so that we can keep some of the students here because a lot of them are being pulled, you know, to other NASA centers or the West Coast and, you know, the big industry there, but we want to try to keep them in Georgia. 
I'm wondering for you, Katie and Hollis, uh, last week when we were hearing all about the 50th anniversary of the forced moon launch, how did you witness that? Did you did you do anything to celebrate? Oh, so I, I definitely, I mean, I don't know if you could really consider this like a normal celebration, but I, I binge watched YouTube videos of people talking <laughs> about like fixing the Apollo um, flight computers and um, you know, like original, you know, launch footage and stuff. And so I, I binge watched that for a good couple of hours um, because it's absolutely amazing what they were able to do. And it, it blows my mind how much technology they were able to pack into that module that long ago. Hollis Neal, thank you very much. Katie Summy and David Cotton for all from the Small Satellite Research Lab at UGA. Thanks so much for your time. Thank you. Thank you. Now, you may have seen on social media that OST got a nice nod from former President Obama over the weekend. He tweeted about our conversation with Georgia Tech-schooled rocket scientist Tiffany Davis. Well, we were also super happy to hear about a much more old-school audience. Last week, we played a recording of Vicki Graves talking about working for NACA, the predecessor to NASA. And we were thrilled to learn that now 85-year-old Vicki listened to that segment on the radio, along with fellow residents at Kingsbridge Retirement Community in Atlanta. Apparently, none of them knew about her past as a human computer or as an advocate for passage of the Equal Rights Amendment. We are very happy, Vicki, Vicki to play a role in outing you. However, wherever and with whom you listen, we love telling stories of Georgia and we love hearing about yours and your thoughts. Share them on our Facebook group, GBB Radio's On Second Thought. We're on Twitter at OST Talk. I'm Virginia Prescott. Thanks so much for taking some time to listen. We'll be back tomorrow with more On Second Thought.